Secrets of Magic panel. I am Mark Seifter, Design Manager at Paizo, and with me I have Logan Bonner and Avi Cole. Logan, why don't you introduce yourself first? Hi, I'm Logan Bonner. I'm the Pathfinder lead designer, and I was also uh, the the one in charge of the Secrets of Magic book on the design side. And I'm Avi Cool. I am the senior editor for Pathfinder, and I was edit lead on Secrets of Magic. Awesome. So today we're going to be talking to you about all of the secrets behind the pages of Secrets of Magic. So it's like the secrets of the secrets of magic. Um, let's put up the picture that we have about um, sort of the diagram of magic. So this is this is Secrets of Magic, and it's the uh, the cover. You might have seen the the final cover at this point. Um, yeah, it was in the keynote, and I think they previewed it a, a couple days ago as well. Perfect. And the final cover looks even cooler because it's got a bunch of symbols on it and a really cool font. And I think that was released on paizo.com very recently as well. Uh, generally, for this book, we um, Logan sort of had a vision for what he wanted to see with that book, uh, uh, wanted to see with the book. Logan, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I sure can. So uh, there's been a fair amount of talk, I think probably a fair number of you have heard it, about how we kind of uh, have done the core books of the line. That's the uh, core rulebook, the APG, the first three best areas, the game mastery guide for the rulebook line. Those are kind of the ones that we're going to really expect people have uh, have in their collection. And then the rest of the books, we wanted to kind of branch out and get more, uh, a little more wild with it. So this is the first one where it's like, we're doing a different art presentation. We're uh, approaching some of the, uh, the story and how it goes in there in a different way. Uh, and the main thing uh, you can see from the image there is kind of a, a diagram of how magic is structured in, the, uh, in our cosmology. One of the things I really wanted to do was dig into that kind of thing a little bit more because um, a lot of the very core concepts of magic have been presented from like a rules perspective, but don't really go into the story of it and what it means uh, and how it comes about within the world. And we did a little bit of that in the core rulebook, and this was a good place to expand on it and talk about it some more. There's that diagram. Yeah, uh, I've seen a lot of fans who built diagrams kind of like that. And uh, I think it was really cool that we were able to do our own. And Logan, you did a lot of work like concepting various different versions of that diagram so that we could get an amazing yeah. final version from the artist. So um, I guess in keeping with that goal uh, that you had, Logan, um, then would you say that the first chapter on treatises was um, really essential to getting that information out about the, the different um, philosophy and the way that people feel and understand about magic in the world? Yeah, and that's why it's called Essentials of Magic, because it is so essential. Right. We um, <laughs> What we did was we wanted to do kind of an immersive reading experience for that part of the book. So it's got some uh, writings from people within the world. Uh, so there's one by an arcane scholar, one by a divine scholar, uh, one for each of the traditions. 
there's a section on the essences that uh, Mark himself wrote. Uh, and then there's, uh, written by Leanne Merciel, there's a section on each of the schools of magic that goes into not only what that type of magic is all about, uh, but also it's got like some uh, kind of associations. So like these are the colors and the animal associated with each type of magic. So kind of the thing that um, you might not jump to first when you're thinking about it from a character point of view or you're looking at the rules, but something that would be really important to the practitioners in the world. We want to get that kind of thing in there to give people more kind of tips to enrich their stories and to give them something to read that was more than just here are some more rules. That makes sense. And I think we have a little excerpt from one of the treatises that we can show you that is, uh, God's, the treatises have really cool art. They kind of look like they're kind of illuminated medieval manuscripts for some of them. And um, yeah. so take a look here. This is from my treatise on essences. And it's got the page that's moving over between the end of spirit and the beginning of life. And just take a look at that picture on the bottom. You can see from uh, this particular treatise that there's these red notes. And that's because uh, as an homage to our editors and just uh, the idea that even in a fantasy world, you need an editor who looks at things from a different perspective. The wizard who wrote the Essences treatise got a lore oracle who is on the opposite side of the Essences to do an editing pass. And so there's little editing notes that are in here about how to present the, uh, the work in a better fashion or maybe less biased towards wizardry. I love this Essence treatise. Um, my favorite thing about it, in addition to the editing notes, which of course warm my heart. It feels very much like a William Blake style kind of philosophical mm. treatise in addition to being like a text about magic. And I think the art also really reflects that. That's a little, uh, you know, for my fellow English majors out there, that brought me a lot of joy. <laughs> uh, I was a, an art major and an English minor. So William Blake is right in the Venn diagram. So this was really fun for me to to work on too. Uh, and as you might expect, there's a illustration for each of the essences in there and they're, they do a really good job of kind of showing the difference between them. I was a computer science major, but a literature concentration. So we've got English all through the, uh, through the panel here. Yeah. And similarly, right. the, uh, the tradition essays are each by like a different type of practitioner. So the mm -hmm. primal one is uh, a letter that, a uh, primal caster is leaving to her granddaughter, uh, which is a really a different type of writing than we usually get. That was really cool. Absolutely. So the treatises are really awesome, but I know that one thing that's going to have drawn everybody in here is the two new classes. So let's start with the Magus first. Logan, Magus was uh, your class. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Magus starting from the playtest process and moving into the final Magus. All right, I'll do that. Yeah, so both of the classes in this book were uh, initially in first edition as well. Uh, and the Magus uh, was one that, you know, is, is really appealing because people love to be able to fight and cast spells uh, and 
the first edition Magus gave them a way to kind of mix those together in a fun way rather than just multi-classing. So this is still continuing that concept, but taking advantage of the uh, action system that we have with second edition. Uh, we built this for the playtest, and I went pretty broad with how many spells you could use with uh, your your spell striking ability, uh, and uh, it ended up being just a little too confusing to use and a little too limited. You really felt like you were kind of locked into one thing uh, just because of how many actions it took to cast a spell and make your special attack with it. So it's a little different in this one. Uh, the spell strike is now two actions uh, with the difference being that you need to recharge it. And the main way you can recharge it is to take an action to recharge it. However, there are some more fun ways to recharge it because your focus spells let you make a strike and recharge your spell strike. So a lot of turns you can cast a spell with an attack and then do a special spell that's going to give you some uh, extra ability. And for example, uh, the one that Eric presented in the keynote, the staff one lets you attack two people while you're recharging. Uh, some of the other ones let you move around or make more accurate attacks or things like that. Uh, so there's a lot of flexibility and each build is going to play differently. And the flexibility also means that um, you can plan your turns differently because it might make sense to do all this on one turn, or you might do a spell strike and then recharge it on the next turn. Uh, it just makes it a lot more flexible than it was in the playtest, and we think people are going to enjoy that. Uh, the other major addition is the Arcane Cascade. Uh, one of the really popular, like wildly popular feats in the playtests, um, I think it was called Bespell Strikes. Uh, the name went through a few changes, so I haven't exactly remembered what it was. Uh, but that has been, because it was such a popular feat and the class felt like it needed one more little thing to start out with, that's now a, a damage buff that all Maguses get. So... Uh, it's a stance that a Magus can enter after they've cast a spell and they'll get an ongoing damage boost. All right. Um, Avi, do you have any notes from uh, sort of editing the Magus? What stood out to you? What was cool or fun stories about the editing process? Um, Editing Magus is fun because I love looking at classes like this and getting to think about how I would use them. So um, when I'm editing a class, I'm often imagining how I would use uh, my actions as uh, a player of this class. And so this, um, I really, really like the edited, uh, updated, um, final version of the Magus class because I had the same kind of um, like reaction that a lot of the players did of like, eh, it's a little bit constricting. Doesn't feel like that at all anymore. Um, you can really explore how you use your actions in different ways to do all kinds of really, really cool, bizarre, powerful things. Um, so it actually feels like a class where you have a, a pretty significant amount of, um, of agency, even at first level to be able to do really cool stuff. It, it doesn't feel like you need to wait to level up um, to gain more and more wild features. You can really go in uh, guns blazing, if you will, at first level. So that that was my favorite thing about the revised um, version of this class. All right. So um, 
in the chat there is a question from law ninja 7 that says basically do you have to make another attack roll for your spell after you made the attack roll for the weapon attack uh which would make you want to not use attack roll spells and be more likely to use a save spell logan uh, that's another change from the playtest, where in the playtest you could kind of glue on any spell, uh, but people really didn't like having that kind of double chance at failure. Uh, so now it's a little bit more like the first edition Magus, where you can use a spell that has a spell attack roll with your spell strike, uh, and you make just one attack roll for both of them. Uh, and then if you want to expand into other types of spells, there's a feat for that. Um, but since that can be a little more limiting, we really want to have that more of an option rather than a default. All right. So let's move on, and we'll still have a question section at the end, which can include Magus sections or Magus questions. But let's move on to the Summoner. Summoner is the class that I was the lead on, so I will field most of this. But uh, of course, Logan and Avi, if you have anything to chime in on, please feel free. So when we went to playtest the Summoner, we took a look at sort of what made the Summoner uh, so interesting and such a class that stood out to players in Pathfinder 1st Edition and made it really called for in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. and we built it up to try to include all that flavor while also not including some of the really like challenging parts about the summoner that also led it to be a contentious class or a complicated class at certain tables. And so what we wound up with is a uh, summoner where you've got a lot of hit points. You have a martial number of hit points and you share those between your Eidolon and your summoner rather than having two small pulls that then when they get to the bottom are interlinked between each other and it by like, oh, well, each of us have low hit points, but I take it for the other person. It's, it, it's doing a lot of math and it's simpler and can avoid certain corner cases to do it this way. This allows uh, with that and the Eidolon and Summoner sharing their actions and using special actions called uh, tandem actions that they uh, use when they want to work together kind of allows this synergistic feel like the Eidolon is not just some minion that you're summoning in, but it's part of your character. It's really like part of your core character. It's your partner and you're sharing, you're sharing your essences. So essentially in the playtest and in the final, you can manifest your Eidolon and uh, that is a lot faster than it was in Pathfinder First Edition because of the fact that um, it's just three actions now. One thing that was changed in the final is that when you manifest your Eidolon, it can take a single action. So if something happens and you have to manifest your Eidolon again, it, uh, you, if you do it right next to an enemy, it can take a strike, uh, which is pretty handy. You can also act together. There's been some slight changes, which I mentioned at the end of the playtest. Act together allows, uh, in the final version, I won't explain the playtest version, either you or your Eidolon performs one activity from one to three actions, and the other performs a one action, uh, a single action. So that could allow you to, what I use it for in my summoner most often is, you, you know, I'll throw a cantrip, maybe an electric arc, and then my Eidolon makes a strike. And that only takes two actions. So I got the other action for free. And I've got 
uh, an action leftover that can be used for either the Eidolon or the Summoner. So it's really um, it's really pretty effective. It makes me one of the more effective characters in my party, but it also is pretty simple to play. It doesn't make my turns take a lot longer than other people in the party. So a lot of the core basics are similar, but there are so many different um, small quality of life upgrades that have been made and I don't want to get into it and overburden the panel with too much. So instead, I'll just tell you about the types of Eidolons because we only play tested one per tradition. And if you're just tuning in um, about summoners, in first edition, they were all arcane. In second edition, they can be from all four traditions. It depends on your Eidolon. If you've got an angel Eidolon, then you're divine because that's a, that's a divine being. And so um, we have the Angel Eidolon still, that was there in the playtest, but uh, we added in some new Eidolons. For example, instead of just having the Devotion Phantom, we have the Anger Phantom, an occult Eidolon that really likes to get mad and do additional damage, and kind of it has that feeling of, you know, like your Eidolon is kind of a barbarian type thing. And it's got an Anger Aura. There's the Beast Eidolon, which was in the playtest. It's kind of got your animal, or it's a, really a beast because it's smarter than an animal. Uh, we've also added Construct, which is a new arcane Eidolon that, just like Constructs, are kind of customizable. It's really the most customizable Eidolon. If you just felt like you wanted more evolutions and the ability to mix and match, Constructs be, uh, formed from the Astral Plane is uh, just a really good match for you and in some senses you can do a lot of things that feel like some of those pathfinder first edition eidolons where you were you know re reconfiguring your eidolon and throwing on a lot of evolutions demon eidolons got your evil um divine eidolon going on and of course all demons have sins right in the pathfinder universe so does yours and you can choose the sin and you get some abilities based on that the Devotion Phantom, which was from the playtest, is going to help defend you and is very, very devoted to something. The Dragon Eidolon, not only from the playtest, but also on the Iconic, is uh, an arcane Eidolon that's got a breath weapon and is really, really neat. Fey Eidolon is a new Primal Eidolon that's very castery. The Fey Eidolon automatically gets some of the new feats that exist that give the Eidolon some spells. And uh, they do a lot of tricks and magic. The plant Eidolon is all about, uh, it's primal as well. And it's got a lot of like reach and roots. It's going to be able to get to you. And then last but not least, and yeah, it only goes up to P. For some reason, all the Eidolons were in the early alphabet. Psychopomp Eidolon um, has got your monitor, kind of neutral divine Eidolon. And they are good at uh they, they have situations where they can do positive damage to undead negative damage to living creatures go invisible and take spirits at high levels which makes them great against incorporeal things so there's all those new eidolons there's way more new feats and i'm not going to get into all the changes but just lots of little things got small upgrades to make it easier and to make it better uh Logan, Avi, any, anything to add on the summoner? Oh, well, we just saw the art of the new summoner iconic. Uh, like I said, the classes were both from first edition, but the iconic for the summoner is new. Um, so there's a, uh, uh, 
meet the iconics for that character on the website now if you want to know a little bit more about her but she's a human child and a, a student and has a dragon eidolon so uh i really like how that one came together it's pretty cool that's right it's Ija. i will i will drop a link unless somebody has already beat me to it into the chat no one has beaten me to it i dropped it there you go so you can meet Ija in um in the blog all right so for our last spotlight section before we kind of talk a little bit about our favorites and then go into questions we're going to be doing a little bit more of a deep dive into the book of unlimited magic and we'll start with a picture of the chapter opener for the book of unlimited magic this is what you're going to see right when you get started in the book of unlimited magic so logan can you tell us a little bit about like the idea behind the book of unlimited magic yeah i sure can so one of the things we want to do with this book rather than kind of do the first edition uh approach that we often had of like here's a bunch of new things for all the classes in the slots where they like to have new things we want to really say like what are some concepts related to magic that we could expand on and talk about and give some cool rules but also um, detail the world a little more and bring in brand new concepts rather than just you know a new bloodline or a new uh, wizard thesis. Uh, and so we have a, I think there are 12 uh, different uh, right. rundowns of different types of magic. Some of them are classics like Thessalonian rune magic. Uh, some of them are a little uh, less well-tread ground like cathartic magic, uh, which is based on kind of entering an emotional, uh, an, uh, enhanced emotional state in order to empower your spells. Uh, there's also stuff like elementalism and geomancy, uh, shadow magic, uh, a lot of just kind of cool concepts uh, that we were looking for different ways to introduce. And this is also the debut of something that we mention in the core rulebook, but haven't actually presented one of until now, which are class archetypes. A class archetype is one that you can get at first level that's going to change your class in some way, more similar to first edition archetypes than to how we do second edition archetypes. And uh, though the name says class, it doesn't necessarily mean that only a wizard can take uh, elementalist or something like that. It means that uh, there's going to be some prerequisites. You get a special kind of altered class feature at first level, and then you're required to take the dedication fee when you reach second level. Uh, a good example of this, something that some of you played first edition might be familiar with with the Arcanist, is the flexible preparation. Uh, the class archetype is called the flexible spellcaster, and it means that you can prepare spells, prepare a smaller number of spells, but cast whichever ones you want instead of having certain slots dedicated to certain spells. So kind of a, a classic concept that is making its re-debut in Secrets of Magic. All right, let's go through a lightning round through each of the 12 topics, and I will ping someone, including myself, to talk just briefly about it. So Avi, can you tell us what's cool about Cathartic Magic? So Cathartic Magic is almost like the barbarian equivalent of being uh, a caster. So what you do is you have a specific emotional state uh, like fear or anger or um, awe or hatred are some of the ones that we have in this book where when you tap into it, 
you can um, gain these extra abilities, gain this extra power, but then there is an emotional fallout that has mechanical effects when that is over. So um, yeah, it's it's a fun kind of parallel to the rage mechanic, but it operates in a really different way and has a really different lore flavor and is for someone who wants to tie uh, role-playing into a mechanical effect. All right, sticking with Avi, tell us about Elementalism. Yeah, so Elementalists, um, this uh, has three different ways that we kind of implemented it in this book. It's got a class archetype, um, and what this does is it um, gives you class options um, or gives you character options that allow you to thrive in different elemental environments that and use those elemental environments to um, evoke your uh, elemental powers. Um, it's not like you pick fire and then that is your one thing that you can do. It's much broader than that. You're feeding off the elements as a whole. And then we also do have, um, this is one of the few places that we do have specific class options. We have specific monk and druid options for the elementalists as well. Awesome. I and will feel flexible. Specifically, I uh, wanted okay. to drop okay. one quick note. Spe specifically for the druid, it uh, now there's an order for each of the elements. Uh, so between this and the core rulebook, the the main kind of druid orders are are really well covered. Yeah, they're the ones you know yes. about if you read about the green faith and you know they've got the other elements. We've got you covered for that. So I'll field flexible preparation since I um I wrote that section. Uh, basically, like Logan said, it, it can give you your arcanist, but it's not a class archetype for wizard that gives you arcanist. You can take it with whatever prepared spellcaster you want. So, uh, and there's even a little bit of a discussion about what kind of character that might make you. If you're a flexible druid, you know, they're sometimes called fey callers and they use the infinite possibility of the first world to be flexible. Or if you're a flexible cleric, sometimes called ecclesiast, they have an unorthodox connection to their deity. Or witches uh, that are flexible, sometimes called invokers, have more personal connections with their patrons. So it has some role-playing notes that um, let you put it into any of the full casters. Because Isley in chat asked even Magus. No, uh, Isley, uh, those are not, uh, Magus are not a full caster, but any of the other full casting prepared classes, such as clerics, druids, witches, and wizards can take flexible preparation. That's what we've got there. Next is Geomancy. Avi, back to you. Yeah, Geomancy is cool because obviously it's tied to the earth, but um, it you can use your Geomancy abilities in all kinds of different terrains using terrain attunement, and the type of terrain uh, that you're currently in affects your Geomancer abilities in specific ways. So you have specific powers that you can use based on tapping into either a swamp or plains or mountain or underground. All of those things give you different uh, unique abilities that you can use. Awesome. Logan, want to take Ley Lines? Sure. Uh, so Ley Lines, another kind of classic concept. Uh, this one is less based on character options. It's a little more kind of about uh, rituals and magic and is a little more world building focused. Uh, so this is one of the sections here that's a little more uh, GM-oriented. Uh, so it'll let you do rituals to uh, find ley lines, to empower ley lines, to make nexuses, and to tap into them. And if you're on a ley line, you can uh, take a 
skill action based on depending on you know the type of uh, magic you uh, use to uh, get special benefits from the ley line and those are going to depend on the line itself uh, but like a basic one lets you do reach or widen spell for free by using the power of the ley line awesome so i'll take pervasive magic Pervasive magic is a variant um, or just an option that you can use in a situation which could either be your entire campaign setting or maybe certain regions where magic is everywhere. It's just infused into everything. And it could be that it's all that's all a lot of primal magic or arcane. Maybe it's all magic. And so this gives you options for areas of terrain that have weird magical effects that are over them. For places where every creature and even just NPC peasants have a certain amount of magic of a certain type and rules for being a PC who's from there and you just automatically have some magic. And so pervasive magic definitely adds another element of additional magic to the game. Obviously, uh, creatures and PCs that have a little bit of extra magic are more powerful, but if everybody's got a little bit of extra magic, including the enemies, then it can sort of balance out in certain ways. And so there's effects for your PCs, for the, the encounters and opponents, and for terrain areas. Logan, want to tackle shadow magic? Sure. Uh, so shadow magic is uh, it covers kind of a few different uh, pieces of ground. We talk a little bit about how shadow magic, uh, where it appears in Galarian. Uh, there's a shadow caster archetype. So think of this as the caster equivalent of the shadow dancer. You get some special shadow altering spells, some shadow focus spells. And you also can take a shadow reservoir feat, which gives you uh, kind of that um, that concept that's been around for a long time of shadow being kind of like partial uh, echoes, uh, faint versions of magic. You can get extra spell slots that are based on shadow. Uh, and then there's also shadow companions. So you can have like a shadow hound or a shadow familiar that gets extra kind of cool shadow abilities. All right. Next up is soul seeds. So it, soul seeds are basically relics, except for instead of being an item, they're like a seed that attaches to your soul. Maybe because you killed the previous owner of it, maybe because you did something special. And so think about if relics were inside of you and growing. And that's basically what you have from soul seeds. They also have a few new uh, relic types that are like, they make more sense if they were a soul seed and not an object. And that's what's in soul seeds. It's pretty simple, but pretty effective, especially if you like relics. How about- uh, and, and I'm gonna note, I'm gonna note that we, we did this before we saw the new Mortal Kombat movie. So we did not, oh, we did not get it from is it. Is it similar uh, to and, that? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's very silly. Uh, watch okay. it if you really want to just zone out and go into a weird space. Uh, there's also oh, two new uh, gifts here. There's a dragon gift and a soul gift, which you can use those abilities for soul seeds. Uh, and they're also pretty adaptable for a relic as well if you want to expand. Yeah, your they could options. work for relics, but they're a little they're a little more tied to soul seeds. But they work for both. Yeah. How about you take? You have soul to kind of pick and choose if you're using on a relic. All right, Soulforged Armaments are, yeah. Uh, Soulforged Armaments are when you really want to have uh, that uh, special Sentai suit that you can summon onto yourself uh, and get a cool like transformation sequence and then have your powerful uh, armor on or your sword in your hand. Uh, there's a Soulforger archetype where you get to kind of establish what the special powers of your, uh, your soul bound uh, weapon or armor are. 
Uh, I think you can also choose uh, shields, though I don't remember for sure if that made the final cut. Uh, but yeah, you can kind of have a, a bound uh, piece of gear that grows with you and uh, that you can bring, bring onto yourself in any situation out of nowhere. Yep. Um, so next after that is Thessalonian Rune Magic. So it's got a treatment about um, about that type of magic, which divides magic into seven sins, seven runes, all of the schools except divination. There's a little mini treatise actually by Rune Lord Sorshan that's in there, even though it's not the treatise chapter. And then you've got a Rune Lord class archetype for wizards that's got all sorts of Rune Lord related options that you can take on your wizard. And um, so there's even, if I recall correctly, an, one additional set of focus spells because six of the seven sins are actually in domains for the cleric already. But since Glander is not a core deity, Sloth is not. So there's we've got Sloth and the other ones were already covered. All right, Logan, want to take true names and then I'll bring us home with Wellspring Magic? Sure thing. So true names, another classic magic concept. That was kind of one of the one of the reasons uh, something might make it into the Book of Unlimited Magic is that it's a common uh, magical trope in fiction. True names let you learn the true names of creatures, use it against them, uh, reveal their true names, uh, and you can even take some spells that are uh, true name based. These are uh, Several of the sections in Book of Unlimited Magic are rarities above common, and True Name is rare because it's something that really works best at a campaign level. Uh, this, kind of like um, Pervasive Magic uh, and Ley Lines, is kind of a, a little more of a GM-focused thing where the GM is really going to bring into the game and then the players can uh, take some abilities to, uh, to get into it. And uh, this also uses the research uh, system, uh, you can use that for finding names, and there's also a simplified option if you'd prefer to do something a little faster. Yep. And last but not least, Wellspring Magic, both a blessing and a curse. You have a deep infusion of magic, and it's even going to possibly give you spells back, like, during the middle of the day. But it's more magic than you can control, so you risk out-of-control Wellspring surges. And when that happens... Who knows what will happen next? In fact, let's see. Someone in chat, roll me a um, d20. First one <laughs> to give me a d20 result. You guys are slow. I think I'll roll my own. Oh, no, I see a 12. Okay. Verdant Clutch. Plants and vines grow from all surfaces within 20 feet, causing all creatures in the area to be immobilized unless they succeed at a reflex save. The escape DC is equal to the spell DC. So there we were thinking everything was okay when plants started growing out of the area. I'll do one more. Let's see what was second. 14. Strike up the band. For one minute, you are followed by orchestral theme music tied to the emotional content of the actions you're performing. This grants you a plus two status bonus to diplomacy, intimidation, and performance checks, a minus two status penalty to deception checks, because if you're lying, it'll be like, or something, and makes certain uses of stealth virtually impossible. It might have other effects as the GM sees fit. All right. Yeah, so, th this is the caster for people who love uh, Rods of Wonder. Uh, 
some some good random table action. Yep. And of course, uh, you're welcome to instead of just using this D20, like homebrew your own D100. If 20 is not enough different things for you, uh, so it's a, it's a good start. And um, it's got, of course, the Wellspring Mage class archetype that you can bolt into your class so that you become a version of that class with a Wellspring. All sorts of cool. So that is that is the end of our spotlight on the Book of Unlimited Magic. I'd like to ask um, uh, Avi first, uh, if you have a few random things that you like from the spells and magic items. Obviously, we have 200 plus spells, tons of magic items. We're not going to be able to go through all of them. So just give maybe like one spell and one magic item or more if you have a few more. And then I'll ask Logan and we can move on to questions. Yeah. Uh, first spell or the first thing, the best spell in this book, summon Kaiju. <laughs> summon Kaiju. It's a 10th level spell. It's an incarnate spell, um, which what that means is incarnate spells are a new type of really high level summon that summons uh, the uh, kind of essence of some kind of super powerful uh, creature. Summon Kaiju has a um, list of different, all the different Kaijus in the Pathfinder world, uh, like Mogaru and Agmazar and Yarthun and all these different giant monsters. And it is, rather than a summon that stays with you for the duration of the spell for most of the battle, these are a mic drop. They come in, they do something explosive as they arrive, and they do something explosive as they leave, and then they're gone. And so it really just completely shakes up the fight um, with something really, really uh, dramatic, like, um, you know, a 1,000-foot-long bolt of lightning uh, takes out the whole field. Like, it's, it's fun stuff. The other thing I wanted to highlight from the spells section um, are we have more in-world documents um, in the spells uh, that are a series of diary entries by a new witch who has just encountered um, her patron for the first time. And uh, the diaries take place over a few years as she grows in uh, understanding of what it means to be a witch and kind of finds her place in life. Those are by Simone de Salle, and she did an amazing, amazing job with those. So uh, it's just a little, a little bit of fiction nestles within um, all of those spells, of which there are so many. I can't even tell you how long it took to edit all of those spells. <laughs> it was an, an enormous amount of work, an absolutely enormous amount of work. Um, as for the magic items, um, I really enjoy um, all the... There are a lot of weird, random um, consumables, uh, things like uh, ghostly portal paint. What does that do? I'm not going to go into the uh, <laughs> mechanics for these. Um, but just like lots of lots of weird stuff. Golden chrysalis, Phoenix, Fla Phoenix flask. Um, just there, uh, because we've done all the basic things that you think of for consumables, um, we've really gone into hyper-specific kind of effects that do really strange and interesting things. So uh, yeah, I think that will be fun for people to look through. All right, Logan, how about some favorites of yours? Uh, 
first i'm going to do a quick note that uh just like avi was talking about the kind of story of a spellcaster throughout the spells section uh the magic items have a bunch of little kind of notes about people's encounters in the world uh with magic items so there's like one written by uh, a goblin about an encounter with an immovable rod and there's some some other entertaining ones like that uh one of the things we put in the spells that i think is going to be really fun are some kind of everyday utility spells the kind of things that aren't necessarily like oh i need to attack somebody it's like i need to count all that stuff and i need to count that stuff right away here's a cantrip for it uh, there's some some fun spells like that that you might want to have handy on a scroll or that for a certain type of character it's like oh no this is i, I don't need a fireball i want this instead uh, that i think people are going to have a lot of fun with another thing i'll mention uh, for the magic items is that we have quite a few new categories of items uh, and one of those is spell hearts which work kind of like a talisman you can attach them to something but they're a permanent item rather than a consumable and if you attach it to your armor it's going to give you a different effect than if you attach it to your weapon. So for example, the flaming star is going to give you fire resistance if it's on your armor. It's going to give you extra fire damage if it is on your sword and you activate it. Uh, so those are pretty cool. And they also let you cast a spell that's tied to them. So each one is kind of themed around an element, uh, except for uh, one kind of more necromantic one that's in here. Uh, we've also expanded uh, magical tattoos. We've uh, We've got a tattoo trait for these. Um, so you can figure out what you need to do if you want to get magic items etched into your skin, basically. Um, there are also Fulu, which are uh, paper talismans you can attach to something really quickly for a wide variety of effects. And uh, there's also a lot of attention in the, going back to spells, there's a lot of attention to kind of uh, filling in gaps in concepts and expanding on things like uh, time spells and magnetic spells and more shadow spells, uh, all kinds of fun stuff that we uh, go into a lot more depth than we have so far. All right. So I should pick some favorites too. I was going to uh, be tricky and pick the um, the diary entries and the, and the other writings at the end uh, since they weren't spells and magic items. I've got some favorites. Like, there's so many spells from aberrant form to zero gravity. It's got you covered no matter what kind of spell that you want. But a lot of people keep asking about Scorching Ray, and it's in there. And I wrote it for Freelance, so I might as well pick Scorching Ray, which is one of the variable action spells added to the book. People are always asking for uh, more, like Magic Missile and Heal. They're a lot of fun. They're a little complicated if we had too many in the core rulebook, but this is a good time. Add some more, right? So you've got Scorching Rain. For one action, it'll shoot. It's second level, like you expect. One action, shoot a ray for 2d6 fire damage. But for two or three actions, you shoot two or three rays, each at a different target, and the amount of damage increases to 4d6. So it suddenly goes up from 2d6 to 1 to 4d6 to 2 to 4d6 to 3. And heightened, it just adds more and more to that. So there's all sorts of spells like that. I'm not going to get into too many details, but I will talk about all the types of new magic items that Logan didn't talk about. So first of all, there's Grimoires, which <laughs> Logan you, gave an, an example of in um, the chat um, for this panel, which Avi and I will be in afterwards. It's on the Discord. Grimoires are a special type of item that if you prepare, if you use them during your daily preparations to prepare your spells, you get a special ability. 
And then spell catalysts are a special type of item that you use as part of casting the spell, and they may or may not increase the number of actions for casting the spell, and they do something special based on the spell. So, for example, since uh, we all know everybody loves fireball, so let's see. For fireball, there are fire starter pellets made of bat guano and other magical accelerants. If you throw that into your fireball, it adds persistent fire damage to anyone who failed their save against the fireball. Who doesn't want to light everyone in their fireball on fire? I know I want to light everyone on fire. So that is what we've got in terms of like weird, completely new, different types of items that are in the book. But there's also a ton of items of all your favorite types. And I think that's it for our favorites. So let's move on into that last bit of this panel with questions and answers from you. So I saw there was already a question. And if you can at me, Arcane Mark, in the Twitch chat, I can see it more easily. There's already a question. What are the dedication archetypes like for the Magus and Summoner? So for the Summoner, you can pick up an Eidolon. It has some restrictions, so it's not going to give you a full martial character. And you don't have as good of an action economy as the as the actual summoner has, but you get actually a, maybe a startlingly high percentage of the Eidolon, and I'm sure there's some very creative things that you can do with that. Logan, do you want to talk just a little bit about how Spellstrike works on the multi-class Magus? Uh, yeah, I have to re-familiarize myself with it because it feels like a million years since we worked on this book. Um, yeah, you can get. Uh, you can get a spell strike at fourth level. Second level is going to give you kind of a little bit of casting, similar to a lot of other spellcaster archetypes. Uh, you can take a spell spell striker feat at fourth level to get the spell strike. Um, however, it takes you a full minute to recharge it. So it's something you can pull out once in a while, but it's not something that you can just kind of use round after round. That's the main difference. All right. So Philip Benz is wondering if there are any new rituals. And the answer is yes. In fact, that 200 plus spells includes the focus spells and rituals. Do either of you have a favorite ritual out of the rituals that are in there? Uh, now my I have favorite to go is not the, the most powerful. Uh, my, my favorite is uh, Mystic Carriage, where if you want to uh, create a carriage route that's going to take you, you know, from your library to uh, the town hall or whatever it is you can uh you can get a carriage to take you somewhere uh but there's also some that are more kind of uh going to enable a lot of stories like mind swap uh which kind of does what it says or bathe in blood so that you can bathe I... in the blood of the young and become young Mark, you, you stole it from you... me. That was exactly what I was going to say. Oh, no. <laughs> I remembered. It's the Elizabeth Bathory spell, <laughs> um, which I believe is uh, is by Mikhail uh, Rekud. I don't know how you say his last name. I'm so sorry, Mikhail. Uh, but yeah, this is this is one of those classic bathe in the blood of your enemies uh, tropes. There's also this, the super fun Asmodian wager which is also exactly what it sounds like. You're <laughs> placing a, uh, a bet with the devil, if you will. Uh, so the, ritual, the rituals are we, super we, we have a full page illustration of the Asmodian wager, and you might be able to guess which iconic is in that making bad decisions. <laughs> no one All would right, ever but... suspect. 
<laughs> I I think I know who it is without even looking, and I was right. So you're probably right too, chat. <laughs> All right. So Lauren Dova is wondering if the three action scorching ray is affected by the multiple tag penalty, and you don't take that into account until after you make the attacks. Pino Grant wonders if Dinosaur Fort is in the book. It is not. Uh, the uh, Scorching Ray made me reminded me of something that is in the book, though, which is Forceful Hand. So if you like those hand spells, now there is a, a Forceful Hand spell that, as you heighten it, will get more of the kind of special hand abilities to push people around and grab them and stuff like that, if you miss that classic spell. All right. Um, Severin Laureate asks... Does Summoner have Constitution as a primary statistic? It does not. It, that is Charisma. GG Sigmar asks about items that add an item bonus to the DCs and statistics of spells. No, that's not part of the core math of the game, so we're not just going to throw that in there and shake that up in, in an expansion book. Um, let's see. Streu is wondering, um, Logan, if you can tell uh, them what the different sort of um, mega synthesis, which is maybe no longer called synthesis, are. <laughs> yeah, the, the name changed a whole bunch. We were like, uh, we went through so many different names. Uh, they eventually became known as hybrid studies. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to just do a real quick rundown of all of them. Most of these were in the playtest uh, in some form. So there's inexorable iron, which is kind of the two-handed weapon uh, magus. There's Laughing Shadow, which is the high movement uh, ability, uh, which works better if you have a free hand. Uh, Sparkling Targe, which is the shield, uh, the sword and board magus. Starlit Span, which is uh, an archer. And then Twisting Tree, if you really are like, staves are cool, I want to use a staff to attack with uh, and use that for your magus and kind of have a little more wizardy look to you. That's the one that uh, you're going to want to pick up. All right. There is a very specific question that we can say yes to. Are there rules for crafting custom magic staves? Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Let me see. Um, and another one about those um, hybrid studies, wondering, do they modify the way spell strike works at all uh, for any of the hybrid studies? Uh, the, the main thing that they're going to do is give you a specific focus spell. That is kind of the way you can restore your, uh, spell strike. I don't, I think the only ones that, um, alter it are ones that really needed to. So the, uh, Starlet Span archery one lets you make a ranged strike instead of a melee strike. Uh, so that'd be a, an example of one that it kind of needs to, if it's going to work properly. That makes sense. Um, there's a question that is, is the Rune Lord available for all classes as a class archetype or any others or just for wizard? It is just for wizard. Yeah. The, the fast Salonians remain big jerks who just love wizards. And that is, uh, that is the restriction they placed. On it. <laughs> yeah. That's they really placed on it. it. We didn't place it. It wasn't us. No. It was the Thessalonians. <laughs> yeah. Blame the Thessalonians for everything, everything. All right, so there anything is... Anything you don't uh, like in the book, Thessalonian meddling. Yeah, right? It's like, is there not enough divination spells? Well, you know, Thessalonian meddling, <laughs> uh, right? So there is a question, uh, are there any offensive cantrips in the book? And the answer is yes. 
there's several that have to do with some different elements that didn't have them before, and the haunting him that does some sonic damage. Logan, what's your favorite of the new damaging cantrips, if you remember? Oh, man. Uh, that's a good question. I, I think the one I'm going to uh, call out is one you, you just kind of alluded to, uh, which is the haunting him, partially because a lot of people have been calling for, you know, a divine attack cantrip, and that's going to fill that spot. But it's also very kind of uh, divine and occult themed because it is literally a haunting him. So I like how yep. the, the theme comes together and makes it feel different from like just shooting a, a ray of frost or something that feels more suited to different uh, traditions. And that gives Divine their fourth damaging cantrip uh, that really fills in the last damage type that Divine like often has on their damage spells, I guess. Because they already could do mental, they already could do negative, actually fifth, because they could do positive, and they could do alignment damage, and now they've got Sonic as well. So... Uh, with their fifth damaging cantrip, that kind of rounds out a lot of the damage types they do a lot of the time. Okay, let's see. Do we have any other interesting questions here? I'll note another cantrip while you're looking, which is uh, gouging claw. So if you really want the theme of your cantrip to be like, oh, yeah. make my hand big and slash somebody, you can do that as well. There's also a puff of poison, where you blow poison in someone's mm -hmm. face. Uh, yeah. Each of the 12 sections of the Book of Unlimited Magic state what their rarity is so that you can figure it out. Uh, yes, real unicorn. Definitely. And some of them are rare, some are uncommon, yeah. and some are just, you know, you can use it whenever. Yeah, if it doesn't have a rarity listed, that means it's common. That uh, Just like with items and spells and all of that kind of stuff. I believe we do right. say that in the introduction, but... Yeah, that's, it, that's it either the means general it's common or that, or that like individual items within the section may list their own rarity because they may be different sometimes. Right. Uh, Iziki Eru is wondering, since there is a class archetype that only um, prepared casters could take, is there anything that only spontaneous spellcasters could take? And I think the answer is no, although there's a ton that are really no, good for well, that. Wellspring well, Mage is spontaneous only. Oh, Wellspring is spontaneous only. Okay, I knew Wellspring stated spontaneous stuff a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. Of course, it's spontaneous only because you're getting it from this big Wellspring and it gives you back slots and things and you couldn't do that with a prepared spellcaster. My bad. So the answer is yes, there is one and it's Wellspring based. <laughs> um, let's see. Do class archetypes use your level two feet like other archetypes? Asked Law Ninja. The answer is yes. You don't buy them at level two, but like it says in the core rulebook, defining class archetypes, they'll lock in your level two feet as the archetype dedication. All right, let's see. There's a lot of questions oh, also, about Blood uh, people, um, and we do not have something that is literally named Blood Ranger, but of course, there's a lot of options for, and there have been for sorcerer and barbarian multi class situations. Uh, what was that, Logan? Uh, I also just remembered, and, and Blood Rager is a good transition to Blood Magic. Uh, so Blood Magic was initially in the book and got cut before the final for space reasons, uh, but it made it into the uh, keynote uh, erroneously. So there is not Blood Magic in this book, uh, but we do have a, a very nice file that we're hoping to get uh, into a future book at some point, but haven't found a home for it yet, unfortunately. All right. So let's do two questions 
to, to finish ourselves out here so that we don't stop exactly on the hour. The first is, is there a section that is on creating spells? The answer is no. There's not a section on creating spells. That's really kind of a, a, a lot of art that's put into the science and you can wind up yeah. going down false paths if you try to overgeneralize that. And last yeah, your question, best bet is to look at existing spells and find the closest thing and then kind of tweak from there until you get what you want. You're going to get a lot mm -hmm. more examples of spells too and what they can do in this book. So there'll be a lot of, oh, uh, yes. a lot of starter points. <laughs> last question to finish the panel, have the spell casting systems for the Magus and Summoner been changed? And the answer is on the whole, they work very similarly. However, uh, the popularity of the ability feats and abilities like Marshall Caster and Magus made it clear that we're going to add more options, uh, especially to Magus, to make sure that you can get uh, another way to pull in some other slots that are thematically appropriate so that you're not quite as limited on that Magus uh, as you were before. And I yeah. think that'll, that'll be it. Do either of you have any last words of wisdom? Nope. Uh, it's a, it's an awesome book. It's, it's the most unique book I've ever worked on. So I think that everyone's going to enjoy it. Okay. Yeah. In that case, stick around for, for an interview with Logan here, or at the same time, maybe do both go into the discord chat with Avi and me and the secrets of magic channel on the discord. Until then, I'm Mark Seifter. And I'm Avi I'm Cool. I, are, we, are we doing a sign-off? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.